Welcome back to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. My name is Christopher Brown, and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the exact same thing. Why do you do this podcast? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in intimate settings and just having a conversation. Today, we find ourselves often becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of the conversation. So with that in mind, in 2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with subjects to learn about them from them. And today's guest is no exception. Thomas Lukasik, the former Deputy Premier of Alberta, as well as the former Alberta Minister of Education, Minister of Enterprise and Advanced Education, Minister of Employment and Immigration, and Minister of Jobs, Skills, Training and Labor. Along with those titles, he has held the title of MLA for Edmonton Castle Downs from 2001 to 2015. Thomas and I chat about how a call from the Premier's office, Ralph Klein's office, paved his way into politics. We also talk about his tenure as an MLA and cabinet minister and working under five different premiers. He gives us a peek behind the curtain that was the last years of the progressive conservative government in Alberta. So with that being said, enjoy cross-border interviews featuring Thomas Lukasik. First off, as always, thank you for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, short, short notice, too. So, like, <laughs> thank you. I was very surprised when people get back to me on such short notice, so thank you. Um, the question I usually start off with, with every former politician, current politician, or anyone in elected uh, government or elected positions, where did your sense of duty come from? It was a sense of duty for me, I think, combined with a sense of having to pay back. Um, as, as you know, I came here as a 13-year-old. We came here as, uh, as refugees. Um, and um, Canada has been exceptionally good to us. Um, I'm here now since 1982. And when I first ran for office, well, it's the only time I, I never ran prior, um, I was what I thought I was doing exceptionally well. I um, graduated from university. Uh, I taught for a while. I started my own business, and the business turned profitable. Um, life was good, and and uh, I was involved in volunteering for a variety of charities and groups, and I was politically involved, uh, so campaigning, managing campaigns for candidates. Um, and there was always this sort of sense of, of of giving back because this place has been so good to me. And that was the only way I, I knew how. Uh, so that was part of it. That was sort of in the background. Um, and then, you know, uh, receiving a call uh, from uh, Premier Klein's chief of staff saying the Premier wants to meet with you. Uh, as a young person, that sort of makes you feel a couple inches taller. And why would the Premier want to meet with me? Uh, so I did. And uh, point blank, uh, they asked, would you run? Um, it wasn't the most 
opportune time for me because um, um, I just bought a house, my first house. Business started to make a profit. Um, but how do you say no to a premier? How do you say no to premier client? I was going to say, especially at that point in time, you know, he was bigger than life. I, you know, there were those who loved him, there were those who hated him, but 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 he was bigger than life. And uh, and this guy asks you to run. Um, so after a very short consultation with with family and, and few friends, um, I said yes, and that's sort of how it how it started. So we'll we'll go back and we talked. You talked about it briefly in your introduction there. Um, you immigrated to Canada when you were 13. In 1982, you, correct. 1982. Do you remember Poland? Oh. When you were growing up? Well, I left Poland, of course. You know, you, you, I left Poland during a very turbulent time. Um, Poland was under martial law. Uh, tanks and and uh, um, and uh, artillery were on every intersection. Uh, strikes, riots, uh, tear gas. That, that's part of my growing up in Poland. Uh, students going on strikes. Um so, um, and, and at the age of 13, 12, 13, you, you, you remember everything. Yeah. Uh, my mother was very much involved in the solidarity movement. Uh, as a student, uh, we were in, in any capacity we possibly could. Uh, we're all contributed, contributing to the effort. So, so I remember Poland uh, very well. Because your father left before you came over to Canada, too. So there was that brief, I think, five years? Uh, close to. My father defected. Uh, this, you know, my life, uh, if, if there ever is a book, uh, maybe I should title it Serendipity. Um, my father uh, worked on transatlantic uh, ship lines, and um, in 1978, um, their ship ran out of fresh drinking water. The, 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 the voyage took longer than it should. They were moving from place to place, and they had to pull into a port of call to pick up fresh water. And it turned out to be St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, uh, Polish ships then, that was in the depth of communism, always had uh, guards to make sure that nobody defects, nobody escapes, but my father managed to in the middle of the night. Uh, he walked off the ship, went to um, a local police detachment in St. John's, Newfoundland, and uh, and asked for a political asylum. Uh, the ship stayed in port. Uh, there were negotiation, uh, negotiations between the Polish embassy and consulate to, to release him and put him back on the ship, which would be a one-way trip to jail yeah. uh, for a long, long time. Uh, but they didn't. They allowed him to stay, and after a few days, the ship departed without my father. And that's how the ordeal began. So did you and your mother and your family know that this was happening? Because N- Yes and no. Um, uh, m- my parents, I think think uh, had a plan that one day if opportunity ever arises um, my father would stay somewhere uh, but those opportunities were rare and far in between number one uh, and this one arose so he took the took the chance and that's where he stayed luckily it was Canada it could have been United States it could have been uh, Australia any, anywhere else because his, his ships were going all over the world um, so in that sense yes but my mother never knew when when um, when in the middle of the night uh, there was knocking on our apartment door and a um, few guys uh, showed up uh, from the, the Polish version of KGB um, to let us know that uh, he did what he did and they wanted a reaction they wanted to know if we knew about it uh, and then the interrogations began for for nearly three years over and over and over again just to make sure the story was straight the story was straight that we that this 
this wasn't planned. Uh, they wanted to know if there are others who are going to follow suit and, and, and uh, basically wanted to know if we are enemies of the state. Yeah. Um, and we basically had to denounce uh, what my father did and, and say we had nothing to do with it. But then after a while, uh, when martial law was in for about a year, in, in, in so it's because it was on December 13, 1981, when it was instituted, and we left Poland in late November 1982. Um, Poland wanted to, Polish communist government wanted to get rid of as many troublemakers as they possibly can. If there were any people who, who were in defiance of the regime, uh, it, it's better to externalize them than keep them inside. And um, again, a knock on the door, um, again in the middle of the night. Uh, it sounds like one of those movies, right? That's right. And, and I'm sure there was some kind of a method to the madness how they were doing things. Um, it, we were given, I believe it was five days to get rid of everything we own, pack and leave. To Canada. To, to join my father. So had, I'm assuming you knew at that time your father was in Canada. Oh, that's right. We, Did we, you have communication well, during that five sporadic, year? sporadic because, you know, this is pre-internet. Yes. Right? So uh, we would write letters. Uh, I think your listeners will find this uh, maybe somewhat interesting. So we would write a letter to, to my father. We never knew whether any of those letters got here. Only by the by what he wrote back, we would, we would surmise whether he received our letter. Um, they would be very sporadic. And, and his letters from Canada, the whole envelope and the letter, the envelope opened, would be in a plastic sealed bag. And when you open the letter, they literally with scissors or, or some kind of an exacto knife would cut out holes in the letter and cut out entire sentences uh, of what they did not think um, was appropriate. So, uh, so really, so that's how we that's how we corresponded. But towards the end, um, we advised our father that we can leave. Uh, we went to Canadian Embassy, Canadian Embassy in Warsaw, issued us a, a visa immediately um, and Polish government gave us not a passport but this travel document and it was to allow us one time uh, border crossing which means you're never coming back yeah. to Poland and uh, and that's how we flew out of uh, Warsaw Airport and uh, one of the guards at the airport said you'll never see Poland again and we flew to London, England and then to Canada, to Canada. Did you ever uh, get angry at your father for doing what he did? Knowing now what he did for the good, no, but at he the time... No, no, he did it for us. Um, I always knew that. Um, no, we um, we were in defiance of that regime. Um, many Poles wanted to leave Poland uh, at that point in time. Uh, it was a very oppressive time, so no, there was, there was no anger. Uh, there was a lot of hardship as a result of that, um, but that's the price you have to pay. Nothing good comes comes easy, right? Yeah. So you moved, you immigrated to Canada. Sydney, Nova Scotia. So what was that like? Especially for <laughs> December, December 1st, 1982. You saw that winter in Newfoundland just, yes. just a couple of weeks ago where they had record snow. I kid you not, if you Google search now, December 1st, 1982, Sydney, Nova Scotia is, is just snowed in. Um, and I remember the airplane from London, England first was, uh, uh, it was descending upon Montreal and it was already sort of evening and I looked looked at the lights and I thought, well, this is not bad. It's a nice big city because I, I come from a very large city in Poland, a port city. But then we boarded, that's where our immigration papers were processed in Montreal. And then we hopped on another smaller plane to Halifax. And and this is, again, pre-internet. I, I know I looked at a map of Canada, but I have really no idea of what the distances are 
were flying. So we fly to Halifax, and again, the plane is descending, and I'm descending, and I'm looking down, and it looks pretty, uh, pretty good. And then we hop yet on a smaller plane, and we fly to Sydney, Nova Scotia, and it was past midnight. And as this plane hovers lower and lower, and there's just one light here and one light there, it's a very small city. It's bitterly cold, and and there are snow banks way taller than I was at that point in time. I remember thinking, where are we? You know, where where in the world is this? Because uh, my experience of winter, Poland gets snow, but it lasts three, four, five days. It's sort of like Vancouver, Victoria. It melts away. But to see these big piles of snow, you know, a meter and a half tall was uh, uh, was an interesting experience. experience. Oh, it, was. it was. Now, so was your father set up at the time? He had a house he, or an apartment? He didn't have a house. He was, he was renting. He was renting a place. Uh, he had a job um, in Sydney. Um, you know, we were far apart from each other for so long. We, we barely recognized him as kids. My brother was uh, only five years old. Uh, so he virtually has never seen him. Um, so it was awkward. It's very difficult in a family. So subsequently, my parents divorced. Uh, the, the relationship didn't survive. Um, you know, those there are many, many prices. Uh, immigration, probably, I would argue, uh, under no matter what circumstances, is one of the the toughest uh, experiences that a person and a family can go through. It's, it's, a, it's a real strain. Um, but yes, he was set up, and um, so we were in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and then shortly thereafter... I was going to say, how do you go from Sydney, Australia? Or I Sydney, love, uh, Nova, Nova Scotia. Scotia. Might as well be. <laughs> to uh, Edmonton, Alberta. Well, so let me share with you. So um, the biggest employer in Sydney at that point in time, other than the port, uh, was the Sydney Steel Plant. Uh, a walking distance from from our home and that plant shut down and all of a sudden overnight unemployment in Nova Scotia and in Sydney in particular skyrocketed and there were no jobs to be had. This is 1982. Um, uh, Economy was suffering throughout the country. And the word was that there are still some jobs to be had in Alberta. So my parents bought this very, very old car and uh, had it inspected uh, and uh, put a roof rack on the roof, uh, bought it in Canadian Tire. We packed everything we possibly could pack into this car and my brother and I slept on the back seats. This is sort of the pre-seatbelt era. <laughs> yeah. Lots of pillows. We slept on it and we drove here. I think it took us about seven or nine days to drive to, to Edmonton. So you got to see Canada. We got to see Canada. Sort of the, the rough way. <laughs> I remember driving I remember driving right in, in, through Ottawa, right in front of the Parliament building and I thought it was a really neat building then. Um, and then through all, you know, through prairies and we ended up in Edmonton. So during this time when you're traveling across getting to Edmonton, is your family politically active or are they trying to keep as far away from politics from what they just experienced in Poland? Well, you can't be politically active. You don't speak English. Well, my, my father spoke little English. As an adult, language acquisition takes much longer. So he spoke some English, conversational. Um, my mother and I and Adam didn't speak any English. Um, when you first arrive over here, your number one priority is survival. Job, rent, and food. Yeah. Uh, and for us, school, uh, learn English. You know, those are sort of the uh, the priorities that you have. So politics is something A, you don't understand, and then B, you can't engage. We couldn't track Polish pol- politics because, again, pre-internet days, you, you, you um, uh, Poland or Lech Wałęsa, the leader of Solidarity, was on the front pages of Times Magazine or McLean's Magazine, so you would look at that. You couldn't really read it because we didn't speak English, but you, you, you really lose contact with... Um, um, with, with 
with your country of origin, and and yet it, it takes time to to become part of you know the the Canadian uh, uh, political scene. But I wasn't very politically active up until when I was about 16 years old. I, I was uh, drafted in a way into a federal progressive conservative campaign uh, for a candidate in in North um, uh, North Edmonton. Um, Do you remember the candidate's name? Yes, it was Steve Paprosky. He was a speaker of of our Canadian Parliament. Yep. And again, serendipity. Uh, I sort of walked into his campaign office, curious to find out what it is that they do. And, and next thing I knew, I was working. And uh, and then they kept calling me for other campaigns because parties are good with keeping lists. And, and I kept volunteering and, and I met some great people. Um, and, and then I kept organizing and I became a president of a association. And then next thing... I end up running for office, but um, so during that time, is it just more federal that you're initially? In, oh. in, initially, it was federal politics. Uh, like, what was your first foyer? What election was your first foyer into provincial politics? Do you remember? It would have been in uh, early nineties, so ninety three probably. So the first Klein government. That's right, ninety three election. Um, that's right. Uh, Lawrence Decor okay. uh, was the candidate for Liberals, and um, they set up. Uh, you know, as a party, you have to run a candidate in every riding. But but uh, PCs knew that there's no way they can beat Lawrence Decor in his riding, which now is named after him. Um, so they had a, a sacrificial lamb candidate running against Lawrence Decor, and they asked me if I would help co-manage that campaign. Uh, so I co-managed that campaign. We got beaten horribly, but we expected to get beaten. Yeah. Right. Getting one vote was a success. Anything <laughs> above one was was good news. It was amazing. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so uh, I think we we quadrupled our expectations. We must have had at least four votes. So that get that, get, that gives you the edge working on that first federal campaign, that first provincial campaign. That's right. And 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 then you know I, I organized that uh, there were there were in Edmonton. Uh, we got decimated in Edmonton. Um, Lawrence Decor. Uh, had most of the writings here. Liberals formed a, a quite a formidable opposition. You know, they were supposed to win the government that yeah. election. Um, so after you lose an election, you, your associations, your constituency associations sort of fall apart. It's, it's, it's hard to get volunteers. It's hard to raise money. So I was contacted then, I remember, by Peter Elzinga, who was uh, the executive director of the PC party and, and said, would you help us organize one or two writings? So I got involved in that. So it sort of it was incremental. So we go back. We go up to 20, 2003, Your first election. Two thousand one. Sorry, two thousand one when you first run. So did you. So two thousand was my nomination, yep. which was very interesting. Well, I was um, going to say, how did how did your like? <laughs> did you get out on the door knocking? No. Like? So 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 I, I meet with Premier Klein, uh, and with Rod Love, who was then I believe his chief of staff, or but yes, at that time, and they ask if I will run, and my comment was. Yes, uh, because they need a candidate. But a uh, sacrificial lamb candidate well, or an actual well, candidate? Well, in Edmonton, in Edmonton, it could have been a sacrificial lamb at that point in time because Liberals and NDP were holding pretty pretty strong in Edmonton. Yeah. 
Um, but but there were those forces sort of working against me. Uh, the fact that um, you know I, I I just had a new uh, family and uh, bought a new house. I have a business that finally started making money. Um, so I said yes, I'll do this. I'll do this for you. I'll do this for the party. But there is a nomination, uh, and looked like it's going to be an acclamation because nobody else wants it. Well, the moment I said yes, within two or three weeks, there was this fella who said, I want to run as well. So I went back to the party, to Peter Elzinga, and I said, you don't need me anymore. You actually have someone who wants to do this. Uh, no, 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 run, uh, because if we have a, a contested nomination race, we're going to sell some memberships, we'll raise some money, and, and it looks better. Okay. So I'm in. Uh, we're having this uh, this race, but but I think at that point in time, I'm sort of participating, hoping to lose. I'm not I'm not hundred percent in. Um, and then a sitting city councilor, a very long term city councilor, a lady by the name of Rose Rosenberger. Uh, she was on city council a number of times. I believe she ran for mayor as well. Very well known individual decides to run. In Castle Down, a nomination. <laughs> so now you're really thinking. So now, <laughs> again, a phone call, I think it was at that point in time to Peter Zinga said, Now you really don't need me. And uh, he said, No, no, you run. Uh, um, and we'll see what happens. And, and But I thought, Well, I, I may back off. Rose Rosenberger called me and said, Thomas, let's have a coffee. And I said, for sure. So I sat down with her and, and we, fine lady, we're having this great conversation. And then at the very end of our coffee chat, she says, look, kid. She calls me, look, kid. She says, obviously, you don't have a chance. So why don't you join my team? That moment in time, I said, I'm in and I'm in all the way. So that evening, I called Peter Elzinga at his house and I said, Peter, I'm in. Uh, I'm going full bore. <laughs> and I started hustling and we were selling memberships. And I remember my mother selling memberships and everybody. And uh, we were outselling her to the point where she dropped out of the race. Really? Yeah. She dropped out of the race. And uh, so then it was just the other fella and me and I, you know, just um, beat him. So yeah. most people get into politics because of an issue. You said you decided to run because Premier Klein asked you. But in the background, in your back of your head. Well, in the gratitude, in the gratitude. and um, But was there an issue that you were wanting was, to champion no, if you didn't no, get in? there wasn't a particular issue uh, at all. Um, I just uh, felt always that public engagement is important. I came from a place where democracy didn't exist at all. Um, and I think it was important uh, to participate, uh, particularly with my experience of being an immigrant. Uh, and, and there were many issues with it, with um, you know, with with social assistance and other issues. In, in the, so there was a whole plethora of issues. But I wasn't a one-issue candidate. Uh, um, no, I wasn't a champion of one particular issue. Later on, as I got my feet wet in politics, uh, you become aware of, of individual issues and you take few of them on. But no, you could not call me a sort of a single-issue candidate at that point in time. So that election comes around. You run. What was that first initial seeing your name on that sign, seeing your name on that ballot? Because <laughs> you ask? for me, it it's, was it's like a strange ridiculous. Thing. <laughs> it's a strange thing to see your name everywhere. Uh, the strangest thing is... Uh, 
to see your campaign office filled with 100 or 150 people working for you, um, it, well, maybe for you is a wrong term, but working to support you, yeah, uh, it's a very humbling experience. Um, and, and who's uh, your campaign manager? Do my, you remember? Yeah, my first uh, my first campaign manager uh, was a fella by the name of uh, uh, Bazaraba. Mr. Bazaraba ran my campaign, uh, and then Silvano Bruno was another fellow who uh, who pitched in and, and, and helped out. But my first campaign was really, um, I was very much involved also in the management of this campaign. Um, I was lucky to have uh, a few people with experience. Uh, uh, Mr. Ross Harris, who was more my f- chief financial officer, uh, and he remained my chief financial officer through everything, either even my leadership race. Uh, I had a good friend um, by the name of Saul Rollinger, who became my, my chief legal counsel and, and became a, uh, my counsel on all the campaigns. So um, I, I didn't know these people well at that point in time, but they became uh, good friends, friends for life. Good friends. Really good friends. So as you said in, just in our interview so far, Edmonton was uh, not looking good for the... Uh, PCs at that time. No, it wasn't looking good, but we actually ended up with a wave. In 2001, uh, the the, the, the winds uh, shifted, and we ended up winning a good majority. It was the subsequent election of 2004 where I lost by three votes. But you won by five. Won by five. And the only two other guys that won was Gene Swazdesky and Dave Hancock. We were the only three that, that managed to carry Edmonton. But my, I had a three-month-long recount, and which was unprecedented in the history of our province because it went all the way to Alberta Court of Appeal for, for a recount. Uh, so then I won my seat uh, back uh, from a liberal uh, candidate. But then there were only three of us. So... You know, it's quite interesting because some of the ultra-conservatives in our caucus, one actually approached me, uh, said, you know, you guys are not really conservatives here from Edmonton. You're liberals. You're just running conservative because you want to win. And I said to him, shake your head, think about it. You know, if you want to win in Edmonton, you run liberal or NDP. Running as a progressive conservative those days was was always a crapshoot. But I squeezed that one out. And, And that in itself, as much as I would never wish this upon any enemy, me to go through that it was a very humbling experience it, it really changed me as an MLA so and I was gonna say so we go back to your first election we'll just talk about one second what was the moment like for you walking into the legislature for the first time as an elected official no, walking on that floor getting sworn in um, was it humbling very much and, and a sense of disbelief um, almost uh, uh, and, and, it, and it always lingered on that I don't belong over here because, you know, as a, as a first generation, uh, as an immigrant, uh, and, and it turned out that I was the first Polish born ever in Alberta elected and still now first Polish born to be in cabinet uh, in any province. Yeah. Um, 
it's a sort of a sense of disbelief, sense of uh, it's a humbling experience. Um, uh, you always want to pinch yourself every so. Remember your first seatmate? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, Ian McClellan was my first seatmate. Uh, he was uh, ex progressive conservative uh, member of parliament who took a break from federal politics uh, and then ran provincially uh, on one side, uh, and then Drew Hutton, uh, late Drew. Hutton uh, from Edmonton, Glenora was uh, was my seatmate as well, and on the other side. During that first term, you, you said going through that re, uh, that re-election and that uh, nominate that uh, contesting of the ballots mm-hmm. made you more humble. Did you find that in that first year you got a little strayed from what you were actually meant to do there, and then that's why people were trying to. That what that's why the vote was so close, or was there a provincial wide uh, sweep, basically trying to get the PCs out because they had been in for at that time almost that, thirty years. That's right. So everyone in Edmonton lost. We we had virtually every seat in Edmonton at that point in time, and we lost all of them, other than was and and Hancock, Dave Hancock. And, and then later three months later me. So there was a wave, um, and it's interesting because if you look at the votes from two thousand one election. Hancock got the most, Swaz was second, I was third. And then that margin held, and that's what allowed us to survive in the 2004 election. Anybody who had a less of a margin fell off and was replaced by, by liberals and NDP. Um, why it was humbling? Uh, no, I, I think uh, Albertans were tired of us as PCs. Uh, Ralph Klein uh, grew out of favor. Um, he has made some high-profile um, mistakes, goof-ups, um, you know, things that just were non-becoming. Um, so it was a it was a multitude of, of things that happened in the 2004 um, election. But why does it? You know, the, the experience of losing an election is very humbling um, because once you lose, you ask yourself. Ah, you know, I should have stood up to my own caucus on that issue, and, and and I voted against my own will just to make the premier happier because the whip wanted me to. Um, I did things that I wasn't proud of because I was told to do it. You know, you're a team member, you gotta stick with the team, even though your gut feeling tells you this is wrong, I shouldn't be voting this way. Um, once you lose that election, you start going over that list of things. And say, so, you know, if I only did what I actually thought was the right thing to do, maybe I wouldn't have lost this election. So you second guess yourself. So when you <laughs> when you come back to the legislature after a recount, uh, you don't verbalize it, but you say to your caucus mates and, and to the premier and to the whip, screw you. Uh, from now on, if I don't feel good about something, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to call you out on it. And I can um, can imagine the sense of entitlement that the party had at that time um, when someone like that, like yourself, would come in and say, I'm going to act on my own constituents' wishes and what I believe is right probably didn't go over well. No, no. So, you know, from then on, um, if you you do a Google search on on media now, you know, I, um, I sort of stood up a number of issues and challenged the premiers of the day. Um, 
but we always managed to resolve it. You know, Ralph Klein was good that way. Um, and, and I had several of these conversations. You know, one was when he called out these ladies on Asia at a buffet, which was just a horrible thing to say. And uh, I remember calling him and saying, Premier, I, I can't support you on those comments. And he says, why? And I explained to him why. He says, okay, well then do what you have to. He was really good that way. He allowed some tether? Sure. And then, you know, there was that issue, which, which uh, my colleague Brent Ratgaber and I, I ultimately lost because of shenanigans and caucus. But when they wanted to uh, uh, cap uh, insurance payouts for for soft tissue injuries, you know, people whiplashes in accidents, which now which now is in effect, um, the two of us challenged and we voted against the entire caucus and against the premier, and we argued like dogs in caucus and before the cabinet because we weren't in cabinet yet. Um, and and Ralph was okay with that. You know, he he allowed that, and so were the subsequent. When premiers, when, when Premier Stelmak brought in the MSI formula, and I thought Edmonton got really ripped off financially, and it did. Um, I called him out on that. And uh, when the province started selling our personal information to private companies like Impark, I called him out on that. So, you know, there was, I can't even list them. So there were a number of them. But then, you know, that 2004 election was the empowering one. So I remember doing an interview one day with uh, Edmonton Journal reporter, then Graham Thompson. Graham. And I said, you know what? Every MLA should lose and win an election. Uh, and it would make them a better MLA, even though the experience is a horrific one. Do you think that if you would have played ball and just followed suit after that 2004 election, you would have been in cabinet earlier? Of course. Oh, of course. Uh, You know, there is... uh, um, Because there's three MLAs in Edmonton, you, Dave Hancock, and Gene. That's right. Both in cabinet uh, at that point in time. Yeah, and they want to try and ensure that Edmonton's heard, so they're trying to probably get as much voices around the table, but you're not playing ball. I'm not playing ball. So, yes, and you know what? And the fact is there's no guessing game uh, you know premier will never tell you this but but your whip often will or you or your senior cabinet members uh, will come to you as messengers uh, and say you know you really should start playing ball uh, on, on these particular issues and you know that went all the way down to Prentice with bill 10 LGBTQ issues yeah. um, you know uh, first the premier's uh, chief of staff called me up I'll never forget this conversation and said uh, Thomas come on you know, you are the only one. And then later, Doug Griffiths joined in. And uh, you can't do this, right? This, this conversation must have lasted at least an hour and a half. I remember pulling over my car and sitting in a running car in the winter and, and having this discussion with the chief of staff. And then the next call is, Premier wants to meet with you. So I walked into Apprentice's office and he says, Thomas, this is causing us a problem. You know, he had this sort of distinct way of speaking. I'm not good at impersonations. And, and I, you know, and I said, Sorry, Premier, I'm not supporting you on this one. That's all there is to it. I said, do what you have to. I'm not supporting you on this one. He says, then he suggested to me that I should absent myself from the legislature when the votes are on, right? Which is a common gimmick. Yeah. And I said, no. I said, to the contrary, even if I'm not on duty that particular day, I will show up in the chamber to speak and vote against this bill. So the gloves were off, you know, the gloves. And then Doug Griffiths came in. And then, you know, ultimately when Prentice snapped his fingers, the entire caucus was in yeah uh, you know it turned around but um, but I don't think I would ever get to this point and I don't um, 
you know, I, regret being the maverick? Oh, oh, no, no, no. And then, you know what? When I got into cabinet, I knew I got into it on my own strength. You don't sort of owe anybody. You, you know, uh, you don't, uh, you don't, if you didn't do the proverbial rear end kissing, you don't owe anybody anything later, right? Um, because during that term, Ralph Klein steps down. Stelmack becomes the new premier of Alberta. That's right. Did you support him in that leadership no. election? No. Who did you support? Uh, Gary Marr. Okay. Because yeah. you supported him both times. That, uh, Gary Marr and Jim Dinning before, but I never supported Stelmack. Uh, Stelmack called me in. <laughs> it was quite funny. So follow, <laughs> this is actually really funny. So uh, following the election... Uh, the with, leadership election or the 27... No, no. The, 2007 election. 2007 election. Okay. After an election, uh, MLAs... All MLAs keep their phones fully charged and, and not on vibrate, like the long, loudest ring, because you hope that the phone rings and Premier asks you to be in cabinet. Well, my phone rings. Premier Stelmach, hey Thomas, it's Ed. Uh, I want to ask you to um, be to run to become the deputy speaker. I said, okay. And he says, because we will be passing a lot of legislation, and he says, uh, it would be good to have you in that chair. And you know the parliamentary procedures, because I always really enjoy that stuff. Yeah. You know the parliamentary procedures well. Um, will you do this for me? And I said, Premier, what else do you have? <laughs> he starts laughing. He starts <laughs> laughing. He's laughing. And, and he says, why do you ask? I said, I'm, I love parliamentary procedures, but I'm not a parliamentarian. I don't want to be a speaker. Uh, I want to be in cabinet. If I can't be in cabinet, I'm, I'm good. I don't want that. He says, okay, um, I may call you back. And that's how this conversation ended. So, so within, so within an hour an and a half. option of potentially doing something for the premier. Yeah. You've said yes to the Ralph Klein. You have officially said no. If you become a speaker, a deputy, uh, assistant deputy speaker, you're neutered. Yeah. You can't do anything. You can't carry bills. You can't speak up in the house. You can't do anything. Uh, it's it's the best way of shutting you up. Okay. Right? So you found that as a slight to... Well, not a slight, to- but I, I think it's brilliant. If I was him, I would do that to me too. Uh, so I said, not interested. So yeah, sure thing. You know, I didn't expect the phone to ring. Hour and a half later, I think it was was or I don't know what it was it was a while um no it wasn't the same day it was it was there was a passage of time he called me into his office and he says we have a problem I said what is it he says uh, Kelly Kreiderman of Edmonton Journal is going to do at least a week-long expose on the disaster of occupational health and safety in our province uh, I need someone to handle this and I said okay and he says so I want you to become my minister of employment and immigration and job number one clean up OHS that's how it happened. Um, so then, then, then I did that because you had background in that. Well, I the company I owned was representing injured workers with WCB files, so I knew the the, the, the file of labor safety, employment safety, right, um, quite well. Um, plus that file. Uh, needed someone who is dumb enough to get beaten up because you had to go to our supporters, the employers, and say you won't be doing business this way anymore. So I remember the front page of, of I think it was Journal or Herald because I somehow in a speech I made a comment that I'm dropping the hammer uh, on Alberta employers on OHS. 
and uh, and we reject the entire system. We hired a whole bunch of uh, um, investigators, and I gave them the power of peace officers, so they can actually subpoena and charge and arrest. And we it was a, it was a massive revamp then, but it was really unpopular. Among not the good employees, most employers were good and they didn't have issues. There was a, a cohort of employers that had a lot of issues. And uh, and it wasn't an easy file, I tell you, because they were leaning not only on me, but other cabinet members and caucus members, and then your own colleagues lean on you to leave them alone. And, and you, when you take on those files, you're, you're on your own. Yeah. Um, but we did it. We did it. And, and you know, Premier Stelmach and I, um, we always saw eye to eye. You know, he was part of the deep six. He was the one who was giving uh, um, Getty and then Ralph Klein a hard time at the beginning, too. He, they were the sort of an internal opposition within our caucus. They called themselves deep six. Really? Yeah. They all wore bow ties and they sat in the back bench uh, behind two rows behind the government line. And they were the sort of the, um, you know, the, the opponents um, of, of a lot of things. So he maybe, in a way, could relate. So you go into the next election. That election is the election that sort of sparks the start of the sort of collapse of the United PCs. Mm-hmm. You see a, a little bit of a rise of the Wild Rose. They don't win that many seats. Was there conversations in your house that maybe it's time to give up? Maybe it's time to step back? I've been in there since 2001. It's been 10 years. Let's move away. Or did you just say, I need to continue what I'm doing? Yeah, you know, Wild Rose, um, I think, mobilized many of us. Uh, Wild Rose brought in a very different style of politics to this province. Um, um, Very much to what we know as an American style gotcha type of politics, very hyper partisan. Uh, it was all about finding receipts and and you know finding stupid things, nothing about policy, nothing constructive, um, and and finding sort of false issues and, and getting the masses angry. Right? It was all it was anger politics. So that actually they motivated me to stick around longer because uh, you simply don't want this kind of politics to um, to prevail. And then. To sit across wild rows, you need people that are capable of dishing it out to them as well and taking it. Um, Unfortunately, you can't play nice with them. Um, Nice in this kind of politics doesn't prevail. The good guys don't win. Uh, We've seen that all over the world right now. So, um, you know, I, I don't enjoy it. Uh, but if there is a if there's a job to be done, I'll take them on. And uh, even if you get dirty in the yeah, that's right. You know, sometimes they say don't don't uh, um, would, what is it? Don't get off the horse and, and something with the pigs in the mud because you'll get well, dirty. Well, the Michelle Obama line: if they go low, you go high, right? That's right. But well, you know, that's a nice line uh, if you're campaigning. But the fact is that once you, once you're in government and you have to deal with them and you have to get policy through um, and you have to convince Albertans that that uh, this is the way to go. Sometimes you you actually have to get a little dirty with them yeah. uh, and expose some of the hypocrisy. Uh, you know, and and I, I I didn't enjoy it, uh, but often I, I had to take this on. And later, as deputy premier, a lot more often I had to take this on. And 
correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you're Minister of uh, uh, Employment and Immigration... The first time around or second? Because I had the portfolio twice. I was going to say, is it the first time or the second time when you meet our current Premier as the, your federal counterpart? Uh, both. Both. Uh, the first time was on a file of immigration. Um, our economy in 2004 was actually doing quite well, and we had large numbers of temporary foreign workers. Um, and the problem was that we were rotating them in and out every couple of years. And my concern was that these workers come here, they don't invest themselves in the community, they don't spend any money in our economy, they send all the money back home, they're separated from their families, that brings social issues both here and back home. Uh, th th there really wasn't anything good about it. And our employers have to spend a lot of money continuously training the new batch, right? Yeah. So I approached Kenny initially uh, and said, look, why don't we um, figure out which ones are good employees and, and simply allow them to stay. We, we know we have about 150,000 of them at any given time in Alberta, except the names change, but the number never changes. Yeah. Why not just make them permanent residents? So the fight started there. Because um, if I'm not mistaken, because I remember reading about this when it was happening. You wanted a Made in Alberta plan, didn't That's you? That's right. Made in Alberta uh, based on skill sets and, and requirements of the industry to find themselves the right employees. The pushback was from Ontario and Quebec because they didn't need any. And there was this odd perception that Kenny kept supporting that the moment we make them permanent residents, somehow they'll pack their bags and move to Quebec and Ontario. And, and my agreement was, why would they when their jobs are here? They only came here. They, they didn't leave their wives and children and husbands uh, and, and their towns that they love to come here to be unemployed. They came here to make money. So uh, why would they ever leave? But but this was a, this was playing to the voter in Ontario and in Quebec, and he didn't want to give Alberta its own uh, immigration policy like Quebec has. So so the fight began then. Second fight was over uh, uh, over transfer payments, both health, uh, the current transfer payments that we talk about. Ironically, sometimes. Ironically, <laughs> that's right. And and also uh, there is a there is a federal uh, grant to provinces for skills development, and um, and our schools needed those grants to develop our own homegrown labor force. So second fight was on that. But the third one, and probably the most defining one for me. Um, that in, in a way defined um, Jason to me as a person who he is, was over a worker, a McDonald's employee, a Filipino, young Filipino woman who was riding a bicycle uh, to work at McDonald's, a temporary foreign worker from, from Philippines. And she got hit by a car. And as a result of this accident, she was paralyzed. And temporary foreign workers can only be in Canada as long as they work. The moment they stop working, they can't have a work permit, which means they have to go back to the Philippines. Well, we have this woman who is paralyzed. Um, for a while, she was on life support system. Uh, immediately becomes unemployed. McDonald's Canada uh, severs their ties with her. And she gets a deportation order. Her doctors are saying if we were to ship her to Philippines now, first of all, it would, she would have to be medevaced, uh, she will die. They, they just don't have the medical wherewithal, especially for a per person in, in rural Philippines, 100% death sentence. 
um, deportation order gets executed and uh, she hides in a Catholic church and a few family doctors and uh, pharmacists take care of her uh, behind closed doors, not billing for it illegally. Um, this information gets to me. Uh, I find her a lawyer um, and, and we take this on and we fight this. And I have telephone conversations and letters with Kenny saying, you can't do this. Uh, this is this is an exception under humanitarian basis. Uh, these are not pieces of equipment that we rent from another country, but the moment it breaks down, you send it back. Yeah, this is a human being. This is a human being, and this woman will die. Uh, he dug in his heels and said, no, under no circumstances. So Did we, you have the backing of the premier of the time? Uh, you know, premier didn't quite, didn't get involved in this. Probably sort of, uh, premier didn't have a role to play. It was a federal decision. This was something that I took on personally. So we took it all the way to federal court and we won. And she's still here. Um, she didn't fully recover, but, but she regained a lot of her abilities. She finished university and I believe she's practicing in a profession as a psychologist or something like this. Became a really good contributing Canadian. But so so I knew uh, Kenny as uh, as from a, a professional stance on on files. But then this one was a more of a personal. And I was going to say that seems like the moment when your relationship became quote unquote toxic with all the leaks yeah. that were happening in Ottawa with how much he hated you because well, of this. Well, yes, call call me a hole and all that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so do you ever like look back on that and say I wish I would have handled it differently no, or because no. of what you've accomplished in that girl that woman is here now she's contributing to a society you are happy the way I that wouldn't I wouldn't you know uh, there are many things I would have done differently this is not one of them uh, definitely um, it, it turned out the way it should turn out uh, I think justice uh, um, and human decency prevailed um, but also it gave me a, a much better understanding um, of, of, of Jason Kenny and um, and, and, and you know I, uh, I, I I don't take politics personally never have um, I think a lot of good people do a lot of horrible things in politics and, and a lot of people do some amazing things um, but but this one um, this one gave me an insight into you know into um, who he really is in 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 situation like this where where this wasn't precedent setting um, this this woman could have stayed she had very exceptional circumstances um, but he didn't stomach steps down yes was that shocking to you because he, he wasn't in the position well, for that long. St- Stelmach, no, he wasn't. Um, there were two cabinet ministers, uh, Ron Leipert, who now is in the Federal Conservative Caucus, and uh, Ted Morton. Um, were the biggest opponents, and, and they really uh, put together the, the coup against Stelmach. Uh, Stelmach was about to pass a budget. There was a deficit in it, not a major one. Um, but a deficit. But a deficit. And these two guys, for some odd reason, I, I still think that they uh, um, this was just a, a pretense, because frankly, when Morton became uh, treasurer, uh, he passed one of the biggest deficits we, we had in a long, long time. So, uh, But they ended up calling caucus members and, and cabinet members. I'll never forget that Leipert called me up and he said, uh, there is a number of us who are walking into the premier's office asking him to resign. Are you in? 
and I told him to get lost, picked up well, the phone. Well, I was going to say, Snellgrove was one of them, right? Uh, no, Snellgrove was sort of passive because he, he, he had a personal friendship with, but he was involved in this behind the scenes. Okay. Called the premier, told him that this is going to happen. The premier already knew, and, and they, they really laid on the premier heavy. Um, but uh, there are a number of reasons. You know, they, they used a deficit as, a, as an excuse, and subsequently they ended up passing bigger deficits. Uh, they, they found him to be too moderate for their liking. He, um, Stelmach is a good man, and, um, and, and he uh, is not very ideological. He, he always tried to do the right thing, um, and he simply wasn't conservative enough for them. That's all, that's all there was to it. Um, so then, uh, you know, Alison Redford comes in, and that's really funny. So uh, let me tell you a little anecdote. So when Stelmach asks me to take care of occupational health and safety, uh, one of the things I find out uh, immediately is that our Crown prosecutors um, have a 100% conviction rate on, um, on OHS charges. Wow. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, hmm, that is really interesting. Um, so Alison Redford then is the Minister of Justice. And we're at Government House, and I don't know her. She's a rookie. Uh, this is just after the election. We, we probably never even had a chance to talk to each other one-on-one. Yeah. Uh, just sort of in caucus and in cabinet. Uh, and she sort of came out of the blue. Apparently, she was involved in, in, in conservative politics, progressive conservative politics in Calgary, but I, I didn't know many of them. So the first one-on-one conversation we have uh, at Government House, I asked her to have a one-on-one with her. And I said, Alison, I think we have a problem. I said, I looked at my files, and... And every time we bring a file to court uh, with uh, criminal charges or HS charges, we get a conviction. So that tells me one of two things. Alison, either you have these amazing crown prosecutors that nail it every time. Which could be. Which could be. I'm not saying, <laughs> yep. but, but it could be. Or they only pick the low-hanging fruit and only prosecute the easy slum dunk ones and throw out of court the other ones. But then when you look at the files, they you know, 90-some percent of files were thrown out. They only prosecuted few and far in between. The ones that could. And she, being a lawyer, being a member of the Law Society... She got furious and she started screaming at me. She says, are you suggesting that my officers of the court are, are not diligently prosecuting files? And, and I said, Allison, that is exactly what I'm suggesting. <laughs> so we're having this conversation. Finally, I have to go to Premier with her and, and ask the Premier if we can bring in more Crown prosecutors uh, that will be specialized just for those files so we can start prosecuting those files. Because uh, if every employee knows it doesn't matter there is nothing that they're not going to do anything that's right how are you going to enforce law when you have no enforcement so we have this big argument she is not happy I'm not happy uh, we go our separate ways a few weeks later she announces she's running for leadership uh, she calls me up and she says are you going to support me and I said sorry uh, A I don't really know you well and B I already committed to Gary Mars so I'm working hard against her and then she wins and she asked me to be her deputy premier well, last that, time we spoke we had a fight <laughs> well and that's what I'm saying like how does a person um, I didn't know about that story but how does a person who goes from fighting with the future premier 
bring her to her deputy premier yeah. because that election, yet again, you weren't yeah. supposed to win. That's right. <laughs> well, you know what? I I think that picking your cabinet is one of the toughest decisions any premier has to make. And um, and and I think she picked me for a number of reasons. A, she needed a Edmonton lieutenant, someone who is relatively well known and can speak on behalf of the government. B, um, at that point in time, we were having many issues with with media, with public relations, with communication. So she needed someone who would be communicating a lot. Um, and uh, later, I found out, you know. Uh, she intended not to be present a lot. Uh, she needed someone who will handle question periods and do all that. Having said all that, I still believe if she didn't have some personal shortcomings, Allison had a really good platform. If she would allow her cabinet and herself to deliver on her platform, she probably arguably would still be the premier of Alberta. Um, her platform was moderate. It was it was financially sound. Uh, it was uh, very progressive on, on the social side of things. Uh, but there were many obstacles that simply wouldn't excuse me, wouldn't allow anyone to deliver on this platform. So, you know, that's how it... Did you ever bring up any of her shortcomings to her while you were deputy yeah, premier? I, I won't discuss with that, but... Uh, no worries. But yeah, Alison and I had a lot of good discussions. When do you become advanced education minister? <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Because this is one area that we do... That I, I kept on seeing over and over in articles was yeah the schools the colleges and universities sure. despised you oh they did and they were and, and and many of them I imagine individually still are upset with me because uh, uh, they are of the opinion that I brought in a budget that that you know that that caused uh, some layoffs and, and things of that nature um, so first we have you have to retract how budget how budget is passed so uh, budget um, it goes through cabinet. Um, uh, but it goes to Treasury Board, and it's the minister of, of that department that, that works with Treasury Board and develops a budget and passes the budget through the Treasury Board. As ministers, you your biggest task is to get your own budget through. So each one of us sort of works on our own budget, and the Minister of Advanced Education works on his. Um, when budget gets get passed through Treasury Board, then they go through Cabinet. Uh, by that time, it is a bit of a rubber stamp. Premier's office tweaks a few things, but uh, so I'm, uh, I got my ba- budget arranged for, uh, well, sorry, no, I don't have a budget, so I'm not even involved in the budgeting office because I'm Deputy Premier, that's the only title I have, and I was the I was the chair of the Operations Committee, which which was really overseeing the entire Cabinet and all ministries and, and work their policies together make sure that policies work with each other and put them through legislation and all that. So I don't have a budget to pass because I'm under the premier's budget. I'm in the premier's office. Um, so frankly, that point in time was was a freer time for me. I have a charity that I started a number of years ago where we build playgrounds for children all over the world. We take old playgrounds here in Canada, we refurbish them, we ship them to third world countries, and then, and then we assemble them. That's why you were in Vietnam. I'm in Vietnam. I'm building a playground, and Premier <laughs> contacts me and says, Thomas, uh, we want you to run. <laughs> well, no, I need you. I, I need you. I will need your help uh, the moment you come back, because I will need you to take the responsibility of advanced education in addition to your deputy premier. I said, sure, why not? Um, so I said, <laughs> sure, yeah, why not? Why not? So I could, and, and the budget, the budget gets leaked, I 
believe. I'm, I'm still in Vietnam. Um, the legislature begins. Uh, I had nothing to do. I, I basically have to carry the budget. What happened in the, in the interim is that two cabinet ministers, one advanced education minister and one uh, culture and tourism, were removed from cabinet. And those two positions had to be replaced. So I picked up advanced education and somebody else, I believe it was... Uh, uh, I want to say Klimchuk. Klimchuk, I think, picked up culture and tourism. Yeah. Uh, so we assume those those additional portfolios, and and your job is to carry Starkey. the budget or Starkey. Starkey. That's right, Richard yes. Starkey. You're right. Tourism parks in Iraq. That's right. <laughs> so our job was to carry the budget through, but at that point in time, you can't change the budget. The budget's already gone through the Treasury Board. It's the approved budget. So. Um, you defend the budget, you just work with what you have. But from a public outside perspective, I was the one that introduced the I was there in the legislature. You were the, the budget. face of it. I was the face of it. I was there as a minister when the budget was introduced in the legislature. And then when the budget was going through through estimates and everything, I was the one you know, speaking to the budget. So I was the face of it. But those who know how budgets are structured, there was six months prior of work, more than six months of work building yeah. the budget, right? So uh, I envy the minister who left because he didn't have <laughs> to deal with it and, and I did and you know it, but in, in politics when you're in government when you're in cabinet in executive council you, you sometimes you just get strapped with things and you don't go out there and say well this is not fair this wasn't my budget it's our budget yeah. and, you, and you pass it through and, and, you, and tell we the, did. you tell the party line that's right to, to a large extent but also you know so when I looked at this budget I, I thought you know what uh, if, if life gives you lemons you know what kind of a lemonade can we make out of this and, and I thought one of the best things that we could probably, probably could do is get our schools all post-secondary institutions to start working with each other a little bit more so they can transfer credit so they can have single registration and, and variety of things so a student that finishes three years uh, let's say of psychology at the University of Calgary and then transfers to University of Alberta doesn't lose 10 courses because they're not recognized or you know whatever the case may be so I started pushing them on campus Alberta and giving them mandate letters on how they would work together and they weren't happy with that either but by that time it, with all the respect to them, bridges were burnt. You know, I was the guy who came in and you cut their budget. Torched everything. You yeah. torched scorcher. Yeah. yeah. But that's fair. You know, uh, it's uh, it's the responsibility that you have to bear. You then become minister. I want to make sure because it's three titles now. Jobs, training, and well, immigration. I was education minister as well. Education K-12. minister. K-12. Uh, okay. K-12. Um, that was interesting because that was during labor negotiations. Uh, which with, is always with, fun which for was a always fun. conservative perspective. That's right. And, but, and, and teachers ended up with zeros. There were some other benefits that I received, but I ended up with zeros. But, you know, no one's ever happy to get zeros. But I thought it was respectful. We had a, a really good relationship, a cordial relationship. Um, with with ATA and then uh, I carried uh, Dave Hancock's inspiring education file uh, because during, you took over for him from him right that's right and then uh, the curriculum review uh, we pushed you know there were actually quite a few initiatives in education that we carried through uh, during that time and uh, and then come next shuffle after I think it was re-election I become a minister because Alice 
2001, the 2015 election. That's no, right. 2012 election. That's right. 2012 election, you guys win. Then you're shuffled to jobs, skills, skills. and training, whatever they mean. That's right. Yeah. Job skills, and training. So you're there. So I'm there. I'm in cabinets. Do you feel more at home in that position because of your background? Well, actually, education, too. I'm a teacher, right? And I have kids in school, and, and I'm passionate about education. So, um, you know, ministries are interesting because it doesn't matter what ministry you have. They actually require a certain set of basic skills. Um, it's like being a CEO of a company. You know, you see a, uh, a CEO of Boeing move into Pepsi. Uh, you say, how can that be? Well, managing a company, large company, the skills are virtually the you same. You just have to rely on the people below you that are going to do the job correctly. That's right. And make sure they work together and make sure that they deliver on your vision. But what the product is that you're selling, frankly, doesn't really matter. Um, you don't need to be expert on the product. You have people who are experts in the ministry. So I do that one uh, for a while, and then uh, Allison steps down, and then I get into the leadership race. Were you shocked at that? No, no, actually, uh, Yet. Uh, I, believe it or not, uh, in caucus, and I, other caucus members will confirm, uh, I was the one uh, who challenged her and said, Premier, are there any more things coming out that we about need to you know. that we need to know? Because if you tell us, we can deal with it. But if I wake up in the morning and turn tune in CBC and hear about it, um, if there are more, you let us know. And... Um, and um, there was conversations had. Well, no, actually, this number of caucus members got very mad with me. There was one I'll never forget in particular, a very conservative one from Calgary, stood up and banged his fist on the table and said, "If Allison is not running in the next election, I am not." Uh, <laughs> you know, and now you would think that no one was supporting her. Uh, it's not the case at all. But um, no, finally the pressure got to the point where she had to step down. I frankly think she should have stepped down a little bit sooner. Uh, and, and, and um, but you get an interim premier of the you time. You get Dave Hancock, a phenomenal guy. Um, the problem with being an interim premier is that people don't really think you're premier because they're already everybody's already backing a different leader. Hancock had problems because there were people uh, working. You know, when you're there only for six months, you're not going to fire everybody in the premier's office and hire your own staff. Yeah. So you basically acquired the staff, and and he had people in his office that were working for for Prentice and leaking information to him left and right so uh, Prentice sort of was the de facto premier even well, I was say, so you got into that leadership race yeah. why why well because uh, because it seemed at that time because this is the this is the time when we actually start meet for the first time that's during right. that campaign um Everyone, like Ken Hughes announces, yes, he drops down. Well, that, that's an interesting story. I think we're going to read about this one day. But yes, he did. Then you and oh, Rick McIver. Ken Hughes was forced out. He was pressured out. There's just oh, I didn't know. Okay, but you don't you don't set is, up a campaign. Is it what's happening right now with the federal conservative? Of course it is. Uh, you know, a, a guy announces he's running, and then three days later he says that it's a tough family decision, and and he's not doing it. Well, come on, you're a very responsible person. You thought about it before you announced you're running. It, Mr. Hughes had a campaign office staffed and furnished. He had a vehicle that was decaled with his name and everything. He started driving the province. He was touring the province. And then all of a sudden, before other candidates step in, he steps out. You know, uh, you would have to be really naive to believe that. But I'll leave that to him to tell that story one day. Um, the party didn't want to race. The party wanted Prentice to win by acclamation. 
which uh, is always because the moment that happens, we see it over and over again in every leadership race that has an acclamation. The party loses more support than they win. That's right. They there was this perception uh, coming from Calgary that that uh, Prentice could walk on water and he's going to save this party, and he is just the right of a conservative. And and you know, and and oddly enough, I was in cabinet for many years and I never met Prentice. He was never in Alberta. Just just like Kenny was never in Alberta. You know, and I and I'll I'll never forget because I, I called a Calgary columnist and I said who covers politics and I said I need your help. Who the hell is this Prentice guy? Because apparently he walks on water and I am yet to meet him. And uh, so so I, I get a little bit of a briefing on him. Uh, but it was supposed to be an acclamation. As a matter of fact, I I was very much convinced not to run. Told not to run. Um, uh, but it's, but you do have a raise. There's three of you. We in have there. a raise. We have a three of us, and and um, and and virtually the same thing happened in our race as as happened in the recent UCP race. And you'll probably read more about it later. But um, you know, it's it's a very interesting race. The numbers don't make any sense, and the computer systems go down. People can't vote. You know, well, everything that happened in the UCP race happened in our race. Uh, I, I'm not saying that Prentice wouldn't have won if if this was a honest, clean race. He he may would may have may probably would have but anyways it's kind of a race and did you uh, enjoy that time when you were crossing the province i i did because uh the ability to to now have this experience of being a caucus member and cabinet member for many years and 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 know what the issues are and be able to sit down with with a group of friends and draft a policy you know what what i think um as my theme was tomorrow in alberta should be all about um you know to us political sort of policy wonks it's it's one of the most inspirational things that you can ever do you know you're 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 drafting a plan a map of what this province actually can be you know the potential that it can have um and then you're driving all over the province and you're sharing it with people um and you're learning you're listening to to you know to, to them telling you what their issues are no it's 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 a very inspirational thing to do but it's a massive thing to do uh, it's not like running a campaign in your own writing this is you know this is really really big did you meet disgruntled PCers who wanted to come back to the fold but were fed up with 40 years? Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, people tend to focus always on the last lightning rod. So at that point in time, the, the tenure of our party wasn't the problem. Alison Redford was the problem. People just um, hated her. You know, for, there's no, no other word of saying it. Uh, many didn't understand her. Many didn't know what issues there are, uh, but simply saw her. Uh, she became sort of the person, personification of entitlement, of anything that possibly could could be wrong. Some fairly, a lot unfairly. Uh, so people were really tired of her. You know that 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 is the, really uh, the issue. Apprentice uh, comes in and on one side argues that you know I am as Albertan as Albertan gets, and you know I've always been here. On the other side, he says, "Hey, I have nothing to do with this. I'm not from here. You know, I yeah. don't blame me." Um, so sort of straddles very carefully that you know that that particular um, divide, and um, and so that that's how it ended. So, Prentice ultimately wins that election, that leadership election. Doug Schweitzer is his campaign manager. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. And he runs for a, a by-election. Mm-hmm. Dave Hancock steps down. 
he appoints two cabinet ministers outside of. Well, he appoints his new cabinet. You're not in it. That's right. Well, you know, I was. I was not. I knew I was not going to be in it because, uh, first of all, uh, um, my the race um, on the face of it was was very cordial, um, and I tried to stick to policy as much as I could. Um, but behind the scenes, it wasn't because uh, actually it was it was Rick McIver that filed an official complaint that cheating is taking place. Um, but but uh, I confronted uh, Jim Prentice at that point in time on a number of occasions and saying, look, uh, I wasn't born yesterday. Yeah. I two know, plus two is not yeah. equal to ten here. That's right. I know what you guys are doing and the numbers, uh, what you're doing right now is wrong and then later the numbers are not up. So when I had my first meeting one-on-one with him after he won, still in his transition office at a local law firm over here, um, you know, I... I confronted him with this. I said, you know what, you're the premier and I will not be challenging the outcome of the election, but I want you to know that I know. Um, so, you know, once you set those ground rules, you know you're not in cabinet. And yeah. and, and and I would find it very difficult to serve in this cabinet uh, knowing knowing this. Um, but then he appoints two cabinet ministers out of... Uh, out of um, not even in politics. Not even in politics. Yeah. Uh, which I intuitively knew is not going to fly over well, uh, even though our parliamentary, the Westminster system, allows for that to happen. Actually, Pierre Trudeau was in cabinet before uh, he got elected. Uh, so there are precedences for it, but not smart thing to do no. uh, from two perspectives from from a public perspective but if you want to upset your caucus what you're really telling you is that none of us, none of you in this room are good enough to serve these two positions I had to reach out outside right? yeah. and especially when you bring in people that virtually have zero background in that particular field you know what does Hank what does uh, um, Stephen Mandel know about healthcare well and, and that I know a lot of people up north were pissed sure they were because oh, the closing so. of the Edmonton airport pissed off a lot oh, of people so there was that, and then you know, then he uh, uh, makes deals to uh, for the crossover of the wild rose uh, of the wild rose. Uh, but you can't be upset about that. Or is it more that they made deals of potential cabinet positions? Oh, they made deals. Uh, the, the actual positions were were dispensed. But the fact is. It's, it's a wrong thing to do. You win elections against the opposition in a democratic way based on policy, but you don't try to devour the opposition so that you don't have any, right? Our system is based on the fact that there is an opposition. And and frankly, I, you know, I, I had the, uh, one of my responsibilities was to meet with Premier Lougheed every so often because that's what he like to do. Um, he would be the first one to tell you that uh, when they were running an election, I believe it was 1981 or 82, uh, his biggest fear was that he's going to win every seat. Uh, it's, it's it's a horror for a government to have that. Yeah. Uh, so you want to know. One position. time in Canadian history it's been done. That's right. It's But it's, it's not what you want. Uh, and and you know, to go out and basically say, I will take the whole opposition into me and, and have this unlimited, uncurtailed control over government is, is not what you should be doing. It, it doesn't say anything good about you as a leader. Um, what's wrong with having this small opposition across the aisle barking at you? 
Um, you know, you can I, take them on in the next election. You can take them on in the next election. Next election was only about a year and a half or a year from then, right? So it's not like they're there for a long time. Um, that really upset caucus a lot. And, and particularly when caucus knew that, it, you know, he brought it to caucus and asked what caucus thinks about it. And then one caucus backbencher said, Premier, I'm starting to get a sense that a deal has been already made. Has it been? And, and then there was admission that, yeah, I already made deals. So deals were made and, um, and, and positions were offered. But the problem he had was that there was such a pushback in caucus and public pushback, he could never make good on those deals. So in a way, you know, there is this sort of sense of satisfaction saying, you know, you, you want to cook up this dirty deal, both the Wild Rose people and him. And, and it never came to fruition because they ended up sitting on back benches for the remainder of that term. Um, and they already were measuring the curtains for deputy premier office, for finance minister office and yeah. others, right? So 2015 rolls around that election wasn't supposed to be called till 2016, mm-hmm. but you guys drop a budget and you go to the public with that budget. You dissolve government, you go to the lieutenant governor, lieutenant governor, and you dissolve. He does, uh, the premier asks for the parliament or legislature to be dissolved. Mm-hmm. This is the election that everyone doesn't know what's going to happen. That's right. Like, no one knows what's going to happen. And I don't even think Prentice knew or Brian Jean knew. Prentice was pretty confident. Um, and Prentice's people were pretty confident. They, they, they thought that they found themselves uh, the ultimate premier, you know, that he, he sort of checks off all the boxes. Um, so I, I, at the beginning, I can tell you he wasn't concerned. I ran in this election race, and if you ask me now or in 10 years from now, why did I run? I don't honestly have a good answer. Because you came out halfway through the election and said, after the party's platform, I think, came out, said, I'm okay with the royalty review. That's right. Well, not only that, but, uh, well, I, I took, you know, when, when you're on a campaigns, provincial campaigns, you have uh, you have uh, teleconferences with uh, the premier, the leader at that point in time, but he was still the premier uh, every so often. And uh, and he asked, how are we doing? And, and you know, it never fails in caucus. Oh, premier, great, great, great. We're going to win, great, great. And I'm thinking either my writing is the only writing where people tell me to F off at the door uh, or, or you guys are full of it. Were you getting that? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know what I was getting the most of? Um, and this is not to uh, not to toot my own horn, but Thomas, I like you. You've done a decent job for us, but I can't vote for you. I won't support you this time around. And it was it was the party. It was still Redford. It was Prentice. It was, it was everything at that point in time. You know, the, the one issue you can defend yourself against, but it was just because you guys stink. Uh, and you can't argue against that. It's yeah. hard, right? So I remember on a teleconference saying, well, I don't know, Premier. I said, I think we're in trouble uh, over here. And then, uh, I don't know, you know what? Uh, I don't recall what the issues were, but royalty review was one, but there were a few other issues. That was the big one I do remember. Where I came to my campaign office and, um, and, and I actually... Uh, discussed a decision of actually reprofiling my ent- entire campaign. You, I couldn't run as an independent anymore because it was past the registration uh, lapse time. Um, but I knew at that point in time that uh, this this is not going well for us. Was the atmosphere 
much different compared to your very first campaign in that campaign. Did you have that group of people surrounding you still? No, volunteers were disappearing. It was more difficult to get volunteers. My core group was always there and, and will always be there. They're just, you know, awesome people. But uh, uh, but we weren't getting those dozens or even hundreds of people just rolling through the campaign office to pick up a phone or to pick up a sign. It was, you know, for someone who was running his then fifth campaign, this was a different campaign. So that's what I want to talk about. So that night, May 5th, 2015, <laughs> you find out that you're defeated. Yes. And the PC party, as we know it, is wiped out to nine seats. That's right. Eight. That's right. Hypothetically, because Prentice says he's not going to sit. Well, he said that during his speech, yeah. Yeah. Are you distraught, or are you thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm upset that I lost, but I had 14 years of good government that I can be proud of what we've done? You know, um, it's a tough night, obviously. Um, The first thing I remember crossing my mind and actually verbalizing is apologizing to all those volunteers. I had a campaign office uh, full of volunteers. Um, my mother, my wife, my daughters, everybody. And uh, and you failed them all. Um, so you, you, you own it all and you profusely apologize to them that they did all this hard work and, uh, and all for none, right? Um, so there's that sense of obligation, guilt. Um, you, you don't really feel sorry for yourself until the next day. <laughs> um, I, I can vouch for that because I know that when my husband lost, he, he, he did the same thing. He apologized to everyone that he could have done more. He could have campaigned a little bit sure. harder. But you always think that, sure. right? But the next day, that's when it's the reflection time, right? You that's worry right. about everyone first and then yourself. So there was, there was that, you know, next morning, um, you, you sort of say, okay, so what do I do now? I have a constituency office to clean out. I have a campaign office to clean up. And then what? You start asking yourself those questions, right? Tell you the biggest, not disappointment, because it's it's not like I expected he would do that. Um, but frustration, I think, would be um, was when Prentice walked off that stage and said, "If I can't be a captain on this ship, I'm leaving you guys alone to your own devices. You struggle out there and you try to put this party together, and I'm giving up my seat." Uh, you know, many of us would have done everything to get that seat, and he just gives his away. Yeah. Um, that sort of sealed the deal, and I know he's no longer around, and and, uh, and I wish all the best to wherever he is and, and his family. But um, then I thought, you know what? Maybe it's a good thing we lost. Um, is that entitlement? That that entitlement. If, if that's if that's the place we come from, uh, then maybe we we haven't we shouldn't be here anymore, right? So uh, somebody told me once that you know the best way to know your spouse is divorce her. Then you really find out. <laughs> this was sort of the same thing, you know. The best way to find out what a person is made of is uh, is go through something like this, right? That shows real character. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you know. It all so ended. You clean up your constituent office, and now you're here mm-hmm. in Urban Muse. 
Yeah. So what is Urban Muse? Because I've been trying to figure out what this is, and I've done, I looked on your website, and I was like, okay, I kind of have an idea, but I want to yeah. hear it directly from you. Well, you know, it, it, a number of things happened. Uh, there, there's a process of mourning you go through. You, you, you know, being a politician for that long, it's not a job nine to five. You work uh, stupid hours, and I don't care what party you're from. You work a lot of hours. You become that. Uh, you go grocery shopping, and you talk policy, right? Then all of a sudden, that ends. So it takes about six months. It's almost like losing a close member of your family and you have to figure out who am I you know for 15 years I never had time to go to restaurants and eat what I want <laughs> somebody orders something for you that's what you ate uh, I, I had no hobbies I frankly lost all my personal friends my buddies uh, went on and did what they did I never had time to do it with them it's I joke I said it's almost like coming out of jail after 15 years and you and you start saying okay well, what do I like what sports would I like you know what what do I want to be when did this building pop up. When did this happen? <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, you're just you're just checking things off in your calendar. That's all you're doing. Um, so uh, for six months, I frankly didn't do a lot. I've done a lot of reflecting, reading, uh, spending time with family, uh, licking my own wounds, feeling sorry for myself, all that kind of stuff. But after a while, I, I run into a, a group of uh, people and and, uh, and and this and I had this idea always because of in, in the Ministry of Education and others, I was always involved in infrastructure. Structure, um, and, and I thought, you know what? There is a way of uh, of getting involved in the in the construction industry and, and building homes and and, and, and other um, structures, and at the same time being innovative and, and sort of bring that inspirational stuff and and, and scouting uh, interesting materials all over the world and putting this all together. And and one of my partners uh, is an architect, and, and now I have uh, another one. And uh, what we started doing is a we started uh, a company that was importing um, rare affordable um, extremely efficient environmentally friendly construction products from all over the world predominantly from Europe though um, relying somewhat on my contacts that I developed over time uh, in that part of the world um, and then we started our own uh, design and construction company so now what we do is uh, we, we build a variety of things we build um, infill houses we build regular houses on, on, on brand new lots all over the place. Uh, we now got involved in building affordable housing for municipalities um, and, and, and apartment buildings and sort of the list goes on and on. Are you enjoying the typical nine to five job now? I do because you know what, I'm learning a lot. I'm still applying the same skills um, that I have as a, as a cabinet minister. Um, you're managing a company. Uh, we have a lot of uh, sub-trades and others that work with us. Um, so you're, you're, you're stick handling issues. You know, this morning, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I came to office and I found out that a container that I need really badly that should have been here three days ago because there are materials for current constructions that are out there will not be here until two and a half, almost three weeks from now and, and you have to juggle that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, but the most important part is uh, to me is there's still a component of policy development, you know, building affordable housing, designing it, uh, having lived in affordable housing, uh, I know how important it is that it looks good so kids don't feel ashamed bringing their friends and saying this is my home um, and, and being innovative um, and, and looking at, at current changes in our environment because of global warming, you know, how, how can we make our homes more resilient to fire and wind and all. So there is, there is still a lot of that 
you know that that I would not be alive to if I wasn't involved in development of public policy. So it, it sort of all blends in. Do you miss it? That's a tough question. You know, I get I've been asked to run federally twice since. Um, provincially, there is no home for me there. I miss a lot of aspects of it. Uh, the I one miss thing that I most talk when I talk to former politicians is they miss the connections, they miss the people, and they miss the time working on policy on the constituent level. That's right. So I miss the constituency office because their people come into your office when they really are usually at the end of the rope with whatever issue they're dealing with. And not always, but many times you get to help them, right? And, and there is, even though most, no one ever writes a thank you letter, but sometimes you get this thank you card and I, and I tell you, it just, just energizes you. And I still actually get notes. Uh, you helped my mom with something 15, 20 years ago, right? And, and so that makes you feel really good. The legislature, I miss the ministries and the ministry staff, the public servants, and working on, on developing policy and implementing it. But I sure as hell don't miss the legislature and and, 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 and caucus and cabinet. Uh, those relationships are very transactional. Um, to show you, it's been only five years. I'm in touch maybe with two MLAs. You know, those are not friends. They never have been, they never will be. Um, you, you're there because you're there, because you happen to win elections. Uh, you work together. You know, uh, Ken Kowalski, in caucus, we sign alphabetically because everybody's equal, whether you're in cabinet or not. So K and L, uh, we ended up, sitting, <laughs> ended up sitting beside each other, which was a bit of a blessing because Ken was a, an old political dog uh, and, and sort of knew the ins and outs of everything. So he, in a sense, took me, one of two people that took me under his wing a little. And the moment I got appointed to cabinet, um, he leaned over and he has this sort of way of being frank and forward. He leaned over, he grabbed me by the shoulder and he says, look at all these. And he used an expletive pointing at the entire caucus. (laughs) And he says, every single one of these using the same expletive wants your job now. And you, you quickly learn that, you know, as much as you call yourself a team and a family, um, nothing makes a backbencher happier than a minister losing his job because there is another opportunity that he or she can become a minister, right? So you're working in this very complex environment where you have this team that needs to work together, but the, te- the team is internally competitive against each other. Um, you know, we look at PC caucus was particularly complex because you had guys like me and and Dave Hancock sitting in the same caucus with Snell Grove and Ted Morton. Figure that out. Yeah. Right? And and so you argue like cats and dogs, and, and you often wonder why am but I here? But aren't you better for that, though? You are. Because you know what? It, the beauty about the PC caucus was, and, and I hope we ever get back to something like that again, is where, where we got to argue policy. And they would come from one world, I would come from another, and somehow we managed to hammer things out. And and we didn't always get it right. Often we didn't get it right, but it was somewhere in near the middle. So, you know, in politics, if you get everybody equally happy or equally unhappy, you're in the right place. And I think we, we, we were striking that most often. Um, now, we just have one. We have the Ted Mortons of the world in that caucus. And do you think Alberta's worse off for that? Most definitely. If, if, if every point of view and, 
and every Albertan doesn't feel represented in that government. Uh, there's something wrong with the government, and and I I would argue with you that um, when 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 Albertans kicked us out, they overcompensated. They were really mad at us, so they went all the way to the left. And a lot of people were saying, "I can't believe I voted NDP," or now nobody will admit that they voted NDP. Well, that's the other thing, right? No one voted for the NDP no, in 2015. And now I'm starting to see the same thing with with UCP. They overcompensated the other way around, right? And because there is no no third option, really. Do you find? Do you think we we've headed to a two party system like Saskatchewan? I hope we don't have a one party system. I certainly hope so, because you know what I'm seeing is what's happening in Alberta. Um, it isn't even any longer a party system. If you pay attention to language, I think language is very important. It's almost like a window to your to your brain and soul. Um, this current. Um, uh, breed of conservatives uh, frankly they're not conservatives that that name has been hijacked Uh, they're they're neoliberals and they're not a political party they're a movement and they actually refer to themselves continuously as a conservative movement Um, it it is sort of pan-Canadian frankly through what Harper chairs the the international democrat union Uh, it is internationalized where they now pull together all the ultra-conservative parties under one tent um, it is more than just winning an election and delivering on policy. It is about changing the country's social fabric. Um, so, and it's very deliberate. And, and I know that most normal people who drive their kids to hockey game don't spend time thinking and analyzing a speech for for wording. Uh, but but it started with with Harper uh, changing the vernacular and starting to call Canadians as taxpayers, not citizens. And and actually going to answer and into speeches of politicians. It only started then. We used to talk about Canadian citizens. Citizens don't want this. Canadians don't want that. Now it's taxpayers. It sort of was brought down to this fiscal framework. Um, the, the worthy and the unworthy, the ones who pay taxes and the ones who don't. And then the, the word, uh, you don't hear any longer our conservative party. It's our conservative movement. Um, to defeat this government is going to be very difficult because you need another movement. You, you, you need... Uh, um, you will need uh, a formidable opposition. And I think the best the best thing I've ever heard is you never elect a government. You defeat a government. That's right. You never put in power a government. Martin got... Uh, Harper didn't get elected. Mm-hmm. Martin got defeated. That's right. Harper didn't get... Uh, Trudeau didn't get elected. Harper got defeated. And Notley didn't get elected. We got defeated badly. Yeah. And they did not trust the Wild Rose. That's right. So the question is, will they now defeat Kenny and bring him back? Notley, when nobody wants to admit to the fact that they actually voted for Notley. So will they now twice um, not admit to it and vote for her again? You know, those are good questions to have at this point in time. Yeah. I, I honestly don't have a crystal ball on this um, there is a lot of buyer's remorse on UCP right now um, you know he promised to focus on jobs and economy but up to now he's done anything but yeah. you know, this this is a government that clearly drives a social agenda not an economic agenda um, I don't think Albertans want it to be as divisive with the rest of Canada as we are you know we're in a very very low uh, spot right now uh, none of that was part of the platform but who knows you know we're in politics one week can can make a world of difference. Do you like poking the bear? 
Is on Twitter. You, sure. you are oh, just yeah. poking the bear every oh, day, yeah. and yeah. it seems like you just enjoy it. Like you just like from time to time, you'll just poke the bear and just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> well, enjoy it. You know, the reason, frankly, why I do it is because I have a bit of an unfair advantage, uh, as I mentioned earlier, of a, a large number of individuals, both from the current government. Uh, uh, people who work in the legislature uh, contacting me because they simply don't believe what they're doing is right and letting me know ahead of time. A uh, number of civil servants uh, feel very uncomfortable, but they know that if they speak up, they're going to lose their job. So they, they uh, trust me, I guess, and, and I know that I will sort of put it out there uh, from post-secondary institutions and others. So I get I get this sort of inflow of, of information, um, number one. Number two, um, you know, one of the advantages that I have, which is uh, maybe rare, is because as deputy premier, you get briefed on every single portfolio, right? And so uh, things don't change that much in five years. Uh, this current government gets the same briefings from the same people that I was briefed on. Yeah. So I know where, where it's at, and I know the dynamics. I know how decisions are made. So uh, I, I sometimes get to be a little coy and uh, and either pretend that I'm predicting the free future, but actually knowing what's going on, or um, or I think or, they'll be so happy to hear that. Yeah. Or. <laughs> Actually, asking questions, you know, that that are maybe provocative, right? Um, you know, it's uh, once you're a politician, it's, it's. I always say it's like a reoccurring disease. You can never really fully. You, you can cure the symptoms, but <laughs> the and, bug is still there. And that's my last question, right there. Would you ever run again, provincially, federally, municipally? Are you happy with the life I'm you have? I'm really happy where I am right now. I I missed my older daughter growing up altogether um, because she was about one year old when I got elected and she was 15, 16 when I, when I left. Uh, I have one more daughter, younger, and I get to actually go to her dance classes and do all that. So that, that in itself is a blessing uh, that I'm really enjoying. Um, I'm enjoying the business I'm in uh, a lot. Um, but I do miss certain aspects of politics. In, in provincial politics, it would be difficult. There isn't a political party that I could buy a membership for right now. Um, Welcome to the club. That's right. And most Albertans, I think, are in the same position. Second of all, uh, it would be very difficult. You know, you can't sort of, uh, I think it was Descartes or someone who said you can't step into the same river twice. It would be difficult. Federally, I'm not discounting that. There is that possibility uh, when the right time comes. But I think that right time is surely predicated on my younger daughter's age. When, at this point in time, when I say to her, let's read a book or let's do something together, she still says yes. I know soon. So when the moment she says when no. the moment she says, oh, sorry, I'm busy, friends are waiting, uh, then then I know I'm, I'm, I'm off the hook and I can I can pursue something like that. And then I may, depending where where this business is at. You know, I, I virtually lost my first business because of getting elected. I ended up having to sell it. Um, you don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen again. I took a massive financial hit then, and it's not fair to my family to do it again. Awesome. Thomas, thank, thank you, you very much for thank this. Thank you. I've learned a lot. Well, you, you were more open than I thought I, you would be, so thank you very much for that. Pleasure. I, uh, it's always nice to actually hear from people the stories, right? Yeah. Because 
we often find ourselves hitting out 140 characters or 280 and not getting the story behind it, right? No, often the stories behind don't get told. And, um, you know, some politicians write books, some don't. But usually the stories behind the, the stories are the, are the they're really interesting stories. So so can we see, a, like, a novel, Serendipitous, but uh, you know, there, 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 Well, there may, there may be a novel, but not about politics, uh, more of a biogra- biographical novel. Um, you know, politics is really difficult because... Um, some of the things that need to be said um, are could be hurtful to some, uh, could be personal in many cases, and um, I would never want to go out there and 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 do that to anybody. Plus, um, you know, we as politicians we get into this, and and you know that you will. There's good and bad that comes with it. But but all of these people, including myself, we have children, and um, I think some things are better left alone. That. Thank you very much, Thomas. Greatly appreciate it. Take care. And once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm-hmm.